Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Professor Paul Lever, CEO at Mining3. It's fantastic to have you along today. I went to visit Paul Lever at his facility at Pinjara Hills, which is a semi-rural area on the outskirts of Brisbane. And it's fantastic to think that humble little Brisbane is home to an organisation that is developing new technologies which are literally changing the mining industry at a global level. But before I introduce Paul to you properly, let me first introduce myself for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any recruitment needs within your business, I would welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you about that. Let me now introduce to you Professor Paul Lever. Professor Paul Lever is a world-renowned expert in mining innovation and technology. As the CEO of Mining3, formerly known as CRC Mining, the business has successfully delivered groundbreaking technology being used in the mining industry today. Paul's research interests include the fields of robotic and automated mining systems, smart mining machines and systems, and intelligent data analysis techniques. He has a Bachelor of Science in Mining Engineering, as well as Masters of Science and a PhD. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Professor Paul Lever. So Paul, welcome to the Arate podcast. I uh, have driven out here to Kenmore to visit your facility on what is an absolutely magnificent uh, Brisbane winter's day. Have you had a good morning so far? Uh, it's been good morning. Uh, I worked late last night, so uh-huh. a quiet morning has been very good. Oh, great. And you've so. been travelling a little bit lately, haven't you? Uh, not not uh, absolutely in the last month or so, but typically I do a reasonable amount of travelling during the year. But I will be going to Japan in a, in a week or so. Oh, this time, So looking forward to seeing Mount Fuji again. Oh, great. So. How long will you be there for? Uh, only about three days, three or four days. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, but some of the research facilities we'll visit or just just below Mount Fuji and the view right. is spectacular. Oh, so, fantastic. Yeah. I was in Japan for a wedding a few years ago and uh, I caught the train from Tokyo to Kyoto and yep. the view the whole way was just stunning. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look, uh, for the benefit of people who are listening in, firstly, let's just start by you telling us a bit about your professional responsibilities. Uh, yes, so I'm... Um, uh, the CEO of Mining3, which is a not-for-profit um, research organization driven to, to, to define the future of mining and understand how technology and innovation and, and what we need to change to, to drive the, the benefits that mining needs to and has to bring to, to, to better the lives of people throughout the world. So, right. so that's critical. And, um, and my, my, my responsibilities are to manage... The relationships around um, this not-for-profit, which is essentially a collaboration of many mining companies, equipment suppliers, and researchers, and um, we we deal with um, very bright and intelligent people, and uh, and uh, and who have fantastic ideas and continually amaze me uh, with the types of things they think about and the new ideas they come up with. 
but they are sometimes challenging to, <laughs> to work with, um, as, as often uh, bright, intelligent people are. Sure. So. And obviously, not-for-profit is a very broad term that's used across a whole heap of different industries from charities and yep. uh, disability services through to, you know, obviously the mining industry, which is yep. definitely not a not-for-profit industry. No. But when you talk about it in the context of you being a not-for-profit, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. Yes, so it means that um, um, we're owned by um, or we're run by these large corporations, but as an entity, um, these corporations get no value back from from us commercially, uh-huh. um, and that any any outcomes that come from the IP that we create that direct that generates benefits back to Mining3 as an entity means we reinvest that back right. in our purpose in research. So really, uh, we're not for profit, not not to be a charity in yes. itself, but, but to be a mechanism by which um, we ensure that everything that generates value back to us is reinvested in the important purpose of, of defining, uh, you know, the, the, how, we, how we extract resources out of the earth and, sure. and, and generate does, benefit benefit to people. So. Yeah. And does that mean also that it gives you a more of a stance of being uh, uh, non-biased towards supporting or enhancing particular organisations versus others? Yes, and we're, um, we're, we're passionate about uh, the fact that, that, that even though we have members and we have people who invest heavily in in trying to achieve these goals mm-hmm. um we 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 will not shy away from saying what we think and what we believe and what our vision right. is so that so that it does give us a broader a broader framework to to be to be engaged but not beholden to to yeah. a lot of different stakeholders okay. and and many of those stakeholders are quite competitive with each other and and we have to sit in that space right yeah. and that must make it interesting for you being the ceo uh from a reporting structure as compared to where you were a listed firm where you'd have a board and a chair um, with you having so many stakeholders involved, what does that mean for you in terms of who ultimately is your boss? Yeah, I mean, I have a board and a um, and I have a uh, and and a and a chairman and and all the the same types of uh, governance entities as as you would in a in a normal corporate, mm-hmm. um, uh, but. Um, the, the board is made up of uh, people that typically come from the the membership organisation, okay. the membership plus a number of independent people, and we and we operate like a business because as a even as a not for profit business, I still can't lose money, and I still have sure. to I have to still be solvent, and so so from that point of view, um, we are we are um, we are you know we are we're governed like a normal corporation, mm-hmm. but but but. The focus of what we do, and the drivers on 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 what the outcomes for us will be, are done in a collaborative way, mm-hmm. in an engaged way, where we we work together to to understand what what the vision of the for the mining industry should be, and and what what pieces we should invest mm-hmm. in, and how we do that collaboratively. Okay, and because many of your stakeholders are global businesses themselves, I imagine you know in many respects you're a global business too. Absolutely, and in fact, the pressures have been for us to become more global um, and have a, a more global reach in terms of both mining companies, uh, suppliers, and research and providers. Mm-hmm. Right, and global not only meaning reaching out to the global mining research community, but the global research community and technology community to understand 
more broadly how things that are being used in other industries can be applied to okay. our industry. So there's no reason for us to develop stuff if they already exist somewhere right. else. And yet being you know, a Brisbane-based organisation, if you've got that global mandate, I imagine that there must be other Mining 3 equivalents elsewhere in the world. Would that be right? Um, no, there, there, there is. I mean, there are other, um, there are other research um, organisations of our um, framework, but but not anywhere near the size or the in types of engagements that we have. And also, more importantly, we we have engagement, very strong engagements with the supplier sector, the OEM mm -hmm. sector, which is which is makes us unique right. in the in the mining research uh, organization or center framework because there, there are many of those organizations that are just mining company groups or or um, uh, researcher groups, um, but there are very few that have these, this strong presence mm -hmm. of equipment suppliers. And, and we intentionally did that because we believe that even though our purpose is not to develop technologies for those OEMs or those suppliers who are members, um, their participation helps us understand how we are more efficient mm -hmm. at developing technologies and getting them into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So they help us understand that that if we develop technology this way, it takes a long time to translate that into a commercial product. But if we do it this way, we can. Plus, it gives us access into understanding what things they're working on so that we don't invest in stuff that they might already be one year away, but mm -hmm. they're not talking to anybody okay. yet because of, of commercial sure. confidence issues. Okay. And so how does, uh, given that you're saying, you know, largely you're in a fairly unique space globally, yep. how does humble little Brisbane end up with Mining 3 versus, you know, some of the bigger, uh, more traditional uh, centres for commerce and industry? Well, um, the history of, of Australia's rise in the in being a leader in mining technology started back in the I think in the 70s when when Australian government started investing in in fundamental research and building its its intellectual capital its academic capital in 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 the research of mining science and mm -hmm. mining technology um, that then grew to to um, uh, and a relationship between between those researchers and industry where where Australian industries realized they could use this capacity, this intellectual capacity to make Australian mining more effective mm -hmm. and more efficient and and lead the world in 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 productivity and other and other metrics. And so what happened is Australia then became a place that had strength in intellectual capital, but also mining companies and mines that were willing to be the 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 engagers of that mm -hmm. technology and the first users the first right. the first movers of that and so what happened is that um, that many researchers like myself um, working in other parts of the world who were struggling to find money to 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 work on research problems in mining were um, were considered in those communities around the world to be at the bottom of the barrel because mining is not a well respected place to to be, were attracted to Australia where we had research organisations and government investment in mining research, uh, an industry that was ready t and willing to accept that, mm -hmm. um, and a place where, where bright people in this area could come to Australia and get embedded in that space and um, put their efforts not towards 90% of my effort in raising a small amount of money to do 10% of the work, but, but your ideas being well received engaged, 
resources available, mines and equipment suppliers and others to support that engagement. And so it created a, a framework where where all of these pieces came together. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you look at why Brisbane and, and Australia in general is that that many of the people working in that space all came from around the world. Right. They all they all came here because there was this confluence of okay. that, and and so there is no there is no um, you know this didn't happen by accident. It happened through a through a structured process that mm -hmm. that has led to now a METS industry, a mining equipment technology sector within Australia that's worth over a hundred billion dollars okay. a year. Whereas in two thousand it was. It was valued at five to ten billion dollars, right. so it's grown significantly, and it's the outcome of all of these steps um, that led to to the fact that Australia is now considered the place where to be the leaders in this space, and 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 um, and clearly that's you know uh, because there aren't the same concentrations around the world. Um, the reason Mining 3 is a global entity is because people around the world are coming here mm -hmm. to get that capacity because they can't get it in the US and mm -hmm. in other parts of the okay. world. Okay, great. And uh, just give us a bit of an idea of sort of the scope of the business in terms of the number and type of employees that you have and also, because I know that's a bit of an unusual circumstance too, and uh, maybe one or two examples of the kind of projects you're involved with. Yeah, so we... Uh, so next year we'll be... From a from a cash point of view, about a fourteen million dollar business, fourteen uh -huh. million dollar. So for a research organisation, that's quite a significant um, significant entity, from a, especially in the mining space. Um, we we do research mainly focused in the in the execution of the resource extraction process, and so not in not in in the exploration or in the minerals processing. We sit in that space, and and from a the type of people we have, we 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 focus very much in in systems instrumentation automation um, area. So we have uh, what we call mechatronics engineers that mm -hmm. make up probably fifty sixty percent of our business. About twenty percent in instrumentation and software and sensors and things mm -hmm. like that. And the last twenty percent is mining people, geology, geophysics, geoscience, okay. those sort of things. So, and the reason is we believe that that mining is a complex problem. Part of the history of mining is about the fact that mining was always considered to be an art, right? So mm -hmm. you learned your profession, it became an art, and you developed it, and we didn't... W many people saw mining as a very complex problem that was difficult mm. to, to put the controls and the engineering and the science behind, and so um, we believe that, that in order to do that, we need to have the fundamental skills of engineering and science to build to build an industry that, that can be modeled and we can have controls and systems and measurements mm -hmm. that, that take it from an art to now a science. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we need people who really understand systems and complex systems and arts and don't, you know, and, and those people sit in sciences like mechatronics uh, where we have industrial and systems mm -hmm. engineers. So, so that's one of the drivers for us mm -hmm. uh, having that. And, and clearly you need the domain experts that bring all of that knowledge and that technology into the framework of, of how mines have to operate mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and work in that mining space. But, but we want to draw from this, the, comp the science of complex systems and, and controls that, that exist across many other disciplines. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that later in the yep. discussion, but why don't we uh, you know, go back to where it all began for you and tell us a little bit about where you were born and you know, mum, dad, brothers and sisters in your early life. 
Yeah, so I was born in, in Johannesburg, uh, um, and uh, my uh, father was a was an engineer. Uh-huh. Uh, a mining engineer? No, uh, one of the first uh, mechatronics engineer, mechanical okay. and electrical engineer. Um, but in the days when you did a mechanical degree and an electrical degree, um, whereas now it's combined into uh-huh. a into a, a focus, um, he started the first instrumentation company in South Africa, and mm-hmm. um, and I got interested in science and engineering at an early age and wanted to be an engineer from from a very early age. Okay. Um, my grandfather was a mining engineer um, who who was educated in the US and um, and ran his own mines and in fact my my mother's um, diamonds and and jewelry were all um, stones etc that my grandfather oh, my grandfather right. found. So so there was a mining background in my right. in my in my background. The uh, apple didn't fall far from No. The no. <laughs> and what about mum did she work while you were growing up? Uh, no, she was a there were there were four kids, two girls and two boys uh-huh. within a six year period. So wow. it was a was a yeah, so we she was a full time domestic full-time engineer. Dem- uh, <laughs> the hardest job in the world. Yeah. Um, and what number were you out of four? I was the I'm the eldest. Right. Um and uh and yes, so I have I have uh, a sister who's a um who who's a um has a degree in um in English and history, but also um, masters and a PhD in agricultural and bioscience engineering. Right, and is a water commissioner in Colorado. Okay, um, I have another brother who is an electrical engineer and is also a medical doctor and runs uh, runs a uh, a series of hospitals for the University of North Carolina on the Outer Banks, which right. is lives in a little town called Kitty Hawk, where the Wright brothers first flew their okay. first plane. And I have a sister who's a, another sister who's a Montessori school teacher. So, Interesting came, came from a family that's that's reasonably well well um, spent a lot of time at university uh, um, doing different degrees and okay. things like that. So, so yes, um, I I uh, I grew up in Johannesburg. Um, went to University of Witwatersrand to do mining engineering mm-hmm. and. Um, after graduating, um, worked a little bit in in deep gold mines in in South Africa before mm-hmm. moving to to the U.S. to to do my masters and PhD. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, did a masters in um, in control systems around hoisting systems in 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 shafts for for mines, mm-hmm. and then then did a PhD in artificial intelligence and control and decision support systems for uh, for mining so interesting really from an early point understanding that that the way we're going to drive the future of mining is around precision and control Mm -hmm. and and building systems that will allow Mm -hmm. us to to turn mining from an art into a science and and really drive its performance and ability to 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 change fundamentally the way we do mining, okay, and and that really has been my research area and my passion um, uh, around that. Uh, I moved to Australia in in two thousand. Uh, at the time, was running the mining and geological engineering program. I was the head of department at the University of Arizona, and again was running a very large research program on my own, spending a lot of time raising a small amount of money. Um, uh, working both for mining companies and equipment suppliers, and saw saw Brisbane as an opportunity to really 
get the money and the engagement and the and work with others who were passionate about doing things that were the same as I wanted to do, where so I would spend my efforts actually doing the work, not raising the money, sure. and et cetera. And so uh, um, was it Mining 3 at that time that attracted you, or it's a previous sort of... Uh, no, uh, it was as, as the CRC. At the time, it was, it was uh, called CMTE, the Centre for Mining Technology and Equipment. Right. Um, the previous CEO had seen my work in engagement with mining companies, but also very strong engagements with Caterpillar and a number of the okay. equipment suppliers. and. And and over a two-year period, kept coming and asking me to come to Australia. Right. And I was, at that time, was running a big research program and department head and had a very poor work-life balance and decided <laughs> that I wanted to come to Australia and that's what I did and got married within getting a year of getting here. So um, I guess, I guess that, that, that worked, right? So, so you met in a, uh, your wife here or...? Here in oh, Australia, right. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So... So, um, so uh, you know, it 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 provided a a perfect oppo- opportunity to 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 create an environment where I could I could work on my passion and um, and and motivate others and the industry to to look for what those next generation futures look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, when you originally moved into this business, what what was the role that you moved into at that point? Um, I was when I first came in. I ran a large research program within mm-hmm. within um, within that within CMT at that time, and also uh, participated as a deputy CEO and and had a number of roles through that period. Um, spent six or seven years between 2000 and now working in the role of uh, business development. So that's building relationships with wide groups of people around the mm-hmm. world for both memberships within our collaborative entity but also in selling large research projects mm-hmm. and taking people's problems thinking about solutions and then working out how to fund those and bringing partnerships together to mm-hmm. make those happen um, I also uh, for a three or four years period also ran was the research director for 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 CMTE, which CMTE became CRC Mining and then mm-hmm. Mining Three. So at the time for CRC Mining, I ran. I was the research director for a while, um, uh, which was really the the position that managed the, the the delivery and the quality of the research program that we were working on. Mm-hmm. And I was the research director before taking on the CEO role, CEO mm-hmm. role uh, in two thousand and twelve. Okay, great. Yeah. I'm always fascinated talking to people from an academic background who then move into whilst you know it's within the context of a not-for-profit, still a very commercial environment. And uh, as a leader in a commercial environment, particularly a CEO, requires you know some significant um, uh, skill sets which are not typically common um, from an academic background. What, in terms of your own evolution into that role of CEO, what were some of the, you know, the moments where you did some introspection and thought, well, if I'm going to do this well, there are particular skills that I need to develop within myself in order to be successful, and how did you go about that? Well, I was lucky that um, my dad, um, very early on after graduating, um, coming back from the Second World War, spending five or six years in North Africa, etc., and then, and then, um, and then finishing his engineering degree, going out to work for a big company, and then very quickly after that starting his own company. So my dad 
was a CEO. Mm -hmm. He ran his own company and I grew up understanding what that meant mm -hmm. and, and got a large amount of tutoring and engagement from, from my dad about what a CEO was, how you run a business, how you start businesses, etc. And he grew a business, his business into quite a large business that was bought out and that company that bought him out then put him in an executive position okay. in the new business where he was then part of a two or three billion dollar business right. so so i you know i as a from an early age grew up with with thoughts and understanding and lots of lessons from my father about you know what the characteristics and right. and of being a ceo was uh, when i was in arizona as an academic i something you do quite commonly in the US in academics is I I started two companies with with colleagues and uh, one of which we shut down the other one I left when I when I left there so I'd had sort of experiences okay. in commercial and and then mining 3 was a corporate entity and I I was the secretary to the board for many years and so you know spent a lot of time thinking about right and understanding how those relationships those and and what it is to be a CEO, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so um, I think it's something that we should be encouraging academics to do more of, and I think it's a critical skill that's part of the evolution of taking good ideas and transforming them through a research process, a fundamental and applied research mm -hmm. process into outcomes. Mm -hmm. Is to have more people that are and in other parts of the world, in the U.S., etc. That's something that happens regularly. So academics have an idea, they find some PhD students, they find some people to work with, they spin off something, they jump out of a university for a while, then get that going and then jump back into mm -hmm. a university. And so and so I think it has good it creates good attributes both in the research space but also in giving people different experiences mm -hmm. and helping them grow as as they as they they move forward where we, we don't see as much of that in in Australia. Okay. Yeah. Um you mentioned right at the beginning of the conversation you decided at a very young age that you were keen to pursue a mining engineering career. Do you think at that time you were thinking, you know, I want to be a CEO or did, did that come later? Uh, I I mean, in the early days, I, I I hadn't selected mining, but I knew I wanted to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had aspirations to be a CEO mm -hmm. because of the, the, that was what my father was and, mm -hmm. and, and, um, he, you know, uh, being a CEO is an all-in position, mm -hmm. um, and I understood, you know, those experiences with him. I understood um, what the responsibilities were, what the opportunities were, what the satisfaction associated with that was. So I always had a had an ambition to mm -hmm. to 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 be in a CEO role. Um, um, I'm not sure that if it, if I never. I never set a target that said I will be a sure. CEO at this point. I just had a, had an understanding, and I, and I I came to Australia with with an understanding that that may lead to a CEO right. role in this space. But I think it it may also have led to a point where I would have jumped out of academics, mm -hmm. and, and I mean I left a tenured position at mm -hmm. the University of Arizona to a non tenured position mm -hmm. here. So so. Um, um, you know, if if the right situations had come about, I potentially would have jumped into something else mm -hmm. to be a CEO. Okay. And at any point, did you think I might like to go and do some formal business 
um, training in education or was that early sort of um, informal mentoring and, and support from your father largely what's given you your skill set? Yeah, I mean, I've, um, you know, there's a lot of literature you read, read etc., that says, um, you know, that there's the drive to, to do an MBA and yeah. to do all those things. And uh, I don't know, there's a lot of, you read the literature, some people say it's worthwhile, some people say it's others. Others said you can you can go out and do a bit of reading and, mm-hmm. and do the same things. Um, and I think these things have different value for different people. I've never wanted to do an M- MBA. Now, clearly, there's director's training and all yeah. those sort of things yeah. which are about understanding the the building blocks of things mm-hmm. you have to do, But uh, which which I do. But, but um, I don't... Um, I've never sort of had a desire um, to go out and get another degree. I mean, mm-hmm. I think three is probably enough. Yeah. Um, but, uh, um, and, and you know, my, my notion is that, that if you can build a team around you with the right type of people, um, and some of the early, um, you know, reading stuff from Harvard and others and what my dad's told me is being a, C- a CEO is not about knowing everything mm-hmm. and knowing everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. I think there's a perception that as a CEO, you need to know everything that's going on. I think you need to have the people and the resources and the engagements around you in your organization that allow you to to be able to be comfortable that that you have the peop- you have the right people looking after those and those people have the skills. Having an organization where where everybody has the same skills will tend to lead to disaster. Mm-hmm. You have to have a population of sure. people that are com- competent in the areas that, and they want to work together, and you all work towards one purpose, mm-hmm. and you have to trust them to do that. And I, mm-hmm. m- my style is, I want to trust somebody to to do the job that 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 um, they designated for in in that role in that organisation, and um, and if we all work together and we 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 trust each other in that space, then. We don't all have to be educated in the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, it's probably better that we're not, oh, and we have different personalities because we'll take on different roles and have and create different successes within the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, tell me, you came into largely this organisation, which other than changing its name a couple of times in the period that you've been here, what have been some of the significant milestones in terms of uh, the evolution of Mining 3? Yeah, you know, the, the, the biggest... I mean, through the life of Mining Three, uh, prior to to changing its name to Mining Three or or um, um, to to where it is, you know, we were a very successful um, CRC, a cooperative research centre within the cooperative research centre program, with significant research outcomes over a twenty something year period. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't been good at saying this, but we've had a significant impact on. On 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 technology and 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 the culture and the thought process within within mining, and also successes in a whole range of um, of uh, of fundamental technologies from you know novel ways to to um, to cut hard rock to to um, automation and instrumentation for for large mining machines for for thinking about new processes uh, to be deployed within the mining within mining etc so there are a whole suite of technological focuses mm-hmm. um, I think one of the the biggest 
um, challenges and 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 um, successes in the last three or four years has been our our move off of Commonwealth funding to be a, a completely industry-funded mm -hmm. entity. Um, and we're within the Australian CRC program. We're one of the few groups who's ever done that, um, particularly evolving from a, a cooperative research centre um, with government funding to a essentially a research organisation with the same sort of objectives, but under fully industry-funded mm -hmm. um, uh, situation where a number of CRCs have transitioned beyond and existed, but but moving into a commercial frame where they took those research outcomes and turned them into commercial products. Mm -hmm. we, we, we have said, well, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to be a group that continues forward looking at long-term, having a long-term vision and doing working on big, significant step change things and and convincing and being able to convince the industry that that um, they should retain their investment in this organisation to do that. Okay. And was the... Uh the step away from government funding because it was required, the funding was being cut off, or were there other motivations from a more self-deterministic perspective? Um, there were... If, if, if our members or the people who were, who were investing in us um, could... Um, saw the opportunity for us to, to be able to apply for funding and get continued funding under that program... I expect they would. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a cutoff point where they say, you know, if if we only got this volume of material of money from from a government organisation because it does create some stability and mm -hmm. a leverage, then it's not worth doing it. But if we get more than it is, right. um, um, and we and we had several of those discussions. So um, are you saying that? If you continue to take the government money, then there would be some obligation and constraint that would come alongside Ab that. Absolutely. And yeah. so so what's happened um, coming off Commonwealth money and moving on to is that we were able to be more agile, mm -hmm. to, to, have a def to change our business model, uh, to look at, at opportunities in different ways. And so we've evolved and, 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 and um, changed our, not the fundamental things we were trying to do but the the business models and how we we build our company and our organization to do those things we we have a lot more flexibility and freedom to build different partnerships different engagements be more global lots of other things that that allowed us to be successful rather than saying well we're going to transition from from having government money commonwealth money to non and maintaining the same operating model because i don't think you can you can survive by doing mm -hmm. that. You have to, you have to reframe the business model and say, well, I'm not just going to change my business by saying, how do I find money to replace the Commonwealth money, um, and go forward. What you have to do is say, how do I create a business model mm -hmm. that allows me to operate and be sustainable in that new framework? And I think we've we've done a lot of work and a lot of effort in in doing that and understanding how we can build a sustainable model um, under. Um, you know, full full industry funding without that that security blanket of having government money mm -hmm. continually flowing into the organisation. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've been in your current iteration of CEO of Mining Three now for about five years. Yep. So, you know, what's the mandate for your role now? So um, the mandate is um, so the big the big change for us was was clearly this transition of Commonwealth mm -hmm. money. So there was a significant effort from a management and from a 
a business point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, the the major mandate for 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 us is to, and I believe we've taken this position, is to define a vision that is significantly different and provides an opportunity for the industry to transform itself into something new um, that is sustainable and will meet the requirements of, mm-hmm. of an industry that, uh, the, you know, the mining industry is one where the, the effective price that we get for a commodity um, that we dig out of the ground has, is going down and has been going down for the last 300 years. You can mm-hmm. track that. And the total volume of, of, of the commodity that you're producing goes up. So you're, you're in a space where you have to generate more of, of, um, of, of, of the components you, you're creating and you're expecting to get less, less in mm-hmm. terms of an effective return for, for each one of those units of of whatever you're producing so so we're in a business that in order to survive that way you can't remain stagnant you have mm-hmm. to continually transform yourself and so um that's our our vision for the future is how do we how do we do that by not just doing continuous improvement how do we make the step changes necessary how do we create transformational change to change our our business that way so mm-hmm. that that we can we can mine more commodities with 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 lower costs, with lower, mm-hmm. but on top of that, they're all the frameworks that that have come into the world today, which is carbon emissions, yeah. reduced energy usage, um, social engagement, environmental. Mm-hmm. So, so there are a whole lot of very significant drivers that are driving our industry at the moment, which are not just about producing gold and using less money to produce an ounce of gold or doing it more effectively, but we're finding less less gold closer to the surface, so the stuff we're finding is getting more complicated. Yeah. And on top of that, people don't like us in our backyards. If we continue to do the things we're doing now, we can't continue to, u- to con- use the same amount of energy. Um, we can't raise money in the same way. People who provide money to support the industry will no longer give us money and say, you go and do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. They're going to say, you can use our money, but you have to use it this way. You Mm -hmm. have to demonstrate social and environmental and other Mm -hmm. things. So it really is saying to us, we need to to fundamentally change what our business looks like. And it doesn't mean that we create bigger trucks or faster trucks or whatever. It means we fundamentally have to rethink Mm-hmm. how we do it mm-hmm. and we think there's lots of opportunities and there's lots of things building blocks we already have which which will take us there much of this is about getting people to rethink that a mine doesn't look like that but it could look like this yep. with very different investments very different business models very different types of technologies driving those mm-hmm. and we think technology is key to all of that mm-hmm. i noted you mentioned earlier you know part of your very early study was around artificial intelligence which yeah. i imagine at that time was probably quite a foreign concept and certainly not the household word that it is now. Yeah. Um, and so I, I can only imagine how complex it must be, not only if you've got massive um, disruptions from a technology point of view, but access to resource issues and social issues. And it, So how do you stay ahead of the curve in terms of how do you become a predictor rather than a reactor? Well, I think the metrics are um, are quite simple from a, you know from a from a, an engagement point of view. Um, you know, if we look at communities and 
and and what all the drivers are there. It's the question then becomes, um, how do we tackle the problem of of getting a um, a resource out the ground? Whether that resource is to to create bricks to build houses or to to create um, copper for for wires for mm-hmm. so so you know people want to live in a place where the environment is nice mm-hmm. and they have they can find jobs where they can they can earn money they can they can um, um, have their families and be happy and successful and pass on a, a good life to to their children etc so so really. Um, in the end, that's the framework of mm. of where we're working, right? And so the question then is, how do we build businesses around um, um, our ability to to do that? So, so in the past, we could put a mine in the middle of a jungle in Central America, and the people that we engaged with um, were beholden to us and had no way of 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 changing their opinion or understanding how to deal with the, the circumstances by which they were engaging with us, whereas now they can connect to the rest of the world, find people who are willing to come and and, and educate them in the right space, can find the information to do that. So, so um, we can't we 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 can't solve the problems that we need to solve by just going somewhere and finding people who don't really care and mm-hmm. who don't know how to deal who who don't are not are not educated enough to to do that. So we're now at a point where we just have to solve all those mm-hmm. problems, mm-hmm. right? And it means it means um, going back to the fundamental ways we've we've done mining and and rethink um, how we're going to execute that. And in the end, the task has to get gold, copper, sodium, what, whatever it is, out of the ground and and utilize it for whatever whatever um, use we're, we're going to, to use it for. In the end, we have to do that no matter how intelligent or, or, um, uh, or, or smart we make the systems, right? Mm-hmm. And mining is, is not an industry and has left being an industry that, that is made up of just big machines that blow things up, etc. We are a very sophisticated industry now. Yeah. But we have, we still have a long way to go, mm-hmm. and so I had an interesting discussion with an Aboriginal elder some time ago around this topic, and us and we were talking about the fact that within um, his his land there was a there was a resource, right? There was a a commodity resource which could bring a lot of wealth to that community, mm-hmm. right? But if that wealth meant digging a bigger hole in the ground and creating tailings ponds and all the rest that was unacceptable right mm-hmm. but the the consequence of that wealth could mean a lot to to the community right to jobs mm-hmm. to to improving the standard of living etc to that community so so a mine with an environmental footprint and all the aspects of how we mine today was totally unacceptable but with a bit of technology if i could generate that same value and extract those resources with almost no footprint with minimal environmental things with jobs and engagement where the community um, got value out of it other than the fact that people paid the money but it created livelihoods and mm-hmm. education and lots of other things then then 
that resource now was a totally acceptable. Sure. And what changed it from being unacceptable to acceptable was not environmental issues in terms of environmental science, etc. It was changing the fundamental technology of how we did the task mm -hmm. of mining. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think we need to get we need to get a handle on is saying how do I do the task of mining within the constraints of all these new things that mm -hmm. have popped up, which we just ignored in the past um, or didn't handle very well in the past. Um, and so it really challenges the thinking of how we as mining people think about what mining is. Um, and it may not be what we do today or what we've done for the last two or 300 years. It may be something completely different. Um, it may be beam me up Scotty, right? Yeah. In the future where where we just have a transporter that transports gold or copper or whatever it is out of the ground and leaves everything behind. Mm -hmm. Now, that we're, we're a long way from that technology, right. but there are a lot of steps between a big hole in the ground and, and a beam me up Scotty sure. point. And in that space are a lot of places where we really change the framework about what mining means to community yeah. and, and, and our world, right? Because in the end, we need these resources um, or else we, we, we will have a large portion of the world's community living below the poverty line sure. and in situations which are not healthy for a world population. So really you're in the business of allowing people to have their cake and eat it too? Um, <laughs> well, it, I mean, if we look at, you know, exploration of space is about finding resources, right? Mm. And and if you look at the 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 evolution of what we call frontier people, they're all people who are, are out there looking for resources, yeah. right? And so the fundamentals of life and, and living, etc., are finding resources, whether it's water, agriculture, bricks, copper, whatever it is, to 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 be able to to have that lifestyle and mm -hmm. to live. And so um, so 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 we're a frontier industry, sure. right? But we're becoming a very bright and intelligent and and smart industry, and, mm -hmm. and I think we've got to go much further down the line. And there are lots of things we can learn from other industries mm -hmm. and engage into ours, and that's the space we want to be in. Great. So let's look to the future now. And yep. you know, if you if you look out to the, sort of the next five year time horizon, what are you excited about for mining three? And also, what are you excited about for your own career? Yeah. So I'm I'm excited about the fact that you know, some of these really interesting new ideas um, that that we've been thinking about and we've been building blocks building blocks for for a long time are are now at a point where we have an industry that understands the challenges it's facing and is willing to mm -hmm. really go down that pathway, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this is a fantastic point in time because because we're going to be able to find investment find communities, find governments who are going to be say, well, look, yes, we understand the future now. If all we're saying is you're asking us for money to build bigger mines and do the stuff that we've done in the past, then then that's a very hard sell. But if you're changing the, the paradigm, right, then then we can we can do this in partnership with the communities, with the governments, with mining companies, and really change what the resource business looks mm -hmm. like. And what really I find exciting is that it's not just a dream anymore. We're going to be testing some of these ideas. And these are ideas that I think are going to be the foundations for much of what we do in this space for the next mm -hmm. 50 years, right? Okay. Um, so, so I think from a challenge... And if I end up 
having something to do with driving that, then that will make me very happy. Fantastic. And and um, and yes, sometime in the next five plus years, um, I expect to to move on to 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 retirement and other okay. and other things, or right. do other things. You know, as you know, there's a there's a time limit for CEOs as sure. well. So, okay. um, um, but but I think there's an opportunity for me to to get this started and push it in the right direction and motivate people in mm-hmm. the right way, and that's what I want to do. Great. One of the underlying reasons for this podcast is to enable people who are aspiring CEOs and C-level executives to listen to those who have walked the path before them and learn from their wisdom. And uh, and so obviously we've talked a little bit about your own evolution as a leader and, and so on, but if you were able to distill some of your key learnings that have really supported your success you know, into some points, you know, what, what would they be? Um, I think... I think from an evolution of of career point of view, it's. Um, I, I mean, I see lots of people who map out a career and say that's what my career is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think career and life and 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 even being a CEO is about is about is about understanding a pathway, but evaluating all the opportunities mm-hmm. along the way. Right? Life is not a net present value; it's an options approach. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you don't say, well, what I do now, um, you know, locks in what value is going to be in 10 years from yeah. now. It's it's a place where you're continually making decisions and there'll be decisions you'll make that are wrong, but there are opportunities then to make the right decisions based on that. And mm-hmm. if you learn from the wrong decisions and you also learn from the right decisions, then, then, then I think you, you have an opportunity to 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 really grow and ex- and, and and be successful mm-hmm. right it's so it's so yes i have a a pathway but that pathway is just a pathway and and there'll be lots of branches and lots of decisions and 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 take everyone and every opportunity at the time and make a decision and then and then if that doesn't work make another decision mm-hmm. so life is about making lots of decisions sure. and each of, some of them will be good some of them will be bad hopefully you get better at making them, and and um, that takes you where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, is your dad still alive? No, no, no. He he um, he passed away a couple of years ago right. at the age of ninety. But, but I imagine uh, it must have been quite you know fascinating and rewarding for him to see you you know evolving in largely a similar industry and moving into a CEO role. I, ma- I imagine he must have been quite proud. Well, and and in fact, um, you know the. As he, as as I was growing up, his ideal was that I would take over his business, right. and and um, and at that time in South Africa, it came clear that he didn't want to because of the you know the changes in South Africa yeah. that he didn't see a future there, and so he sold the business. So so from that point of view, you know, to see me, um, I mean, he was always very supportive of the research and the yep. types of things, but also then moving into those type of roles was, Great. I think, satisfying for him. Um, he, he had children quite late, so he was quite old when all of this happened. But, um, but yes, I, um, you know, we, we had these discussions right up, you know, until, until he passed away. Cool. So, oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. My dad was a professor of pharmacy, and yep. I think when I was doing chemistry at high school, he realised I was just a, you know, 
a hopeless case to ever follow in his footsteps. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, now, we've talked a lot about business today and we've talked about mining and mining three and so on, but I suppose just to close out the conversation, uh, you know, what's Paul like to do when he's not at work? Uh, I've got three kids and, um, and yes, yeah, so, um, you know, everything I do is, is driven by, by, you know, creating a good life. And, How old are and they? Um, I have 10-year-old twin boys okay. and a 13-year-old boy right. as well, so uh-huh. three boys. Yeah. But, but yes, they're, uh, they're the purpose for life. So, right. um, and so much of outside of work is, is focused around Mm-hmm. working being with them spending you know come to conclusion very quickly it's not how much time you spend with them it's the quality of yeah, time sure. you spend with them because I'm away fair amount but right. but that doesn't matter as long as when I'm there I'm I'm heavily engaged and and so yes so it's it's not just the participating and being at football games and doing all those things but also us going out and doing lots of things together yeah. and okay. cycling together the the recent one is uh, I'm back on my uh, on my um, mountain bike, right. uh, going cycling with them, uh, and they have much younger legs than yeah, I do. Yeah, sure. So. <laughs> well, for those people who aren't familiar, I mean, Kenmore, where we're sitting here today, is quite a sort of a semi-rural area. Yep. You know, but yet very close to Brisbane. It's very beautiful. And uh, and so, do you live in this kind of area? Yes. You know, I live. I live about seven or eight minutes from here. Oh, really? So, it takes so no doubt you've got a big block to. Mow. Yes, two and a half acres. All of, right. Which. For three boys and and a family is fantastic because sure and and also in a community where um uh, where there are lots of kids in the so I can come home and there'll be ten kids there and then they all go over the fence to somebody okay. else's house which is fantastic. Brisbane's a great place to to have that sort of environment. There are not a lot of large cities around the sure. world where that's still capable of doing right. So I always know that somebody you know one of the parents and families always knows where you know yeah. is looking after the kids and and they all understand that community which i think is fantastic for a kid to grow up so. oh that's excellent so. well look uh, before we wrap it up any final comments you'd like to make before uh, we call it a day no i think that's that's reasonably we done it yes that's oh, good that's excellent well look uh, i really appreciate your time today paul and uh, have a fantastic afternoon great and same to you thank you for coming out a pleasure Well, thanks again for joining us today. I look forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.